Well, the Greek, pardon me, the word evangelism is derived from the Greek word for gospel, which those with background in Greek may correct my pronunciation, but I think goes like this, evangelion. You can hear the resemblance, can't you? Evangelism, evangelion. The word evangelism is derived from the Greek word for gospel. Therefore, evangelism basically means, if we were to transliterate it into English, gospelizing. The work of gospelizing. The work of evangelism is the work of gospelizing. This is so basic and yet so important as we consider the task of evangelism. It's important because it teaches us what evangelism is not. Firstly, evangelism is not simply saying, God bless you, or I'm praying for you, or something vaguely spiritual like that. Many people feel like they're evangelizing when they're bold enough to mention God in a conversation or to let someone know that they're a Christian, or to say something like, God bless you, or I'm praying for you. The conversation's drawing to a close, and they feel their heart racing as they think about what they're going to say at the end of the conversation. Should I say, I'll pray for you? Is it too risky? Well, I know I should evangelize, so I'll say, I'll pray for you. So they tell their friend that, and then they go and tell their other friends, their Christian friends, you know, I had an opportunity to evangelize today. Someone was sharing something difficult that happened in their life. And I was feeling nervous. I was feeling scared, but I had the opportunity to evangelize. I told them I would pray for them. Well, that's not evangelism. It's good to pray for people. It's good to tell them that you'll pray for them and encourage their hearts that way. It's right, in fact it happens in the scriptures many times, to say, God bless you. Paul does this all the time in his letters. But doing these things and saying these things is not the work of gospelizing. It's not the work of gospelizing because God bless you or I'll pray for you is not the gospel. (coughs) Furthermore, Evangelism is not to be equated with having any significant spiritual conversation whatsoever. Again, many people feel like they're evangelizing when they're talking about the existence of God with an atheist. Or if they're debating the truth of the Christian religion over against another religion with somebody who adheres to that other religion. Many people feel like they're evangelizing when they visit someone in the hospital, ask them how they're doing, pray for someone to recover soon and have a meaningful conversation with them about the grief and the pain that they're going through, or when they pray with a grieving family for comfort over loss of a loved one and have a conversation about that. But in trying to convince someone that there really was a worldwide flood or that the scriptures really are reliable, are you sharing the gospel with them? Of course not. The gospel is not that there was a worldwide flood. 
the gospel is not even that the scriptures are reliable. Or in praying that God would comfort a grieving family and talking to them about their grief, are you gospelizing them? Are you sharing the gospel with them? No. Because the gospel is not, I will pray for you. Or, Lord, would you help this sick person get better? Or would you bring comfort to them after the loss of their loved one? Again, all of these things are good things to do. By all means, talk to atheists. And, and try as best as you can to answer some of their objections. By all means, speak with people of other religions and contend for the truth of Christianity. Visit those who are sick in the hospital and talk with them about their difficulties. Visit grieving families and talk with them and listen to them and have significant spiritual conversations. But recognize that unless you're sharing the gospel, you're not gospelizing. Inviting someone to church is not evangelism. Many people, again, they tell themselves, I evangelized so-and-so when I invited them to church. I'm doing my part in evangelism by inviting people to church. But is the good news, you're invited to church? Thank God, it's far better than that, actually. Nor is the church itself evangelizing when it hosts something like what we did in August. We had a free barbecue and fish fry right out here. We delivered 500 flyers in the neighborhood and invited people to come out and have a bite to eat. And the goal was simply to meet people in the neighborhood, start building relationships. We're a newer church, so we wanted people to know that we're here and just make a good first impression. That's a good thing to do, but again, it's not evangelizing because a hot dog or a fish cake is not the gospel. So when we give someone that, we're not giving them the gospel. All of these things that I just mentioned are good things. It's right to incorporate God naturally into our everyday conversation, speaking of Him throughout the day. It's right to say to people, God bless you, or I'll pray for you. It's right to have significant spiritual conversations with others. It's right to discuss objections to the faith with unbelievers. It's right to pray for the sick or the hurting. It's right to invite people to church. It's right to build relationships with family members or friends with the hope of future evangelism. But none of those things are evangelism proper. You have to remember that evangelism is gospelizing. Many of you have probably heard the saying, preach the gospel always. If necessary, use words. That's a ridiculous statement because the gospel is words. Gospel means, most literally translated, good news. You can't gospelize without the gospel. You can't evangelize without the evangelion. And if the words of the gospel are not there, the gospel is not there. Just like if you turn on the news... Tonight, and the man stands there and doesn't speak, he isn't giving you the news. It's not the news just because the news reporter's there. Evangelism is not wordless interactions 
nor is evangelism non-gospel words. Evangelism is the proclamation of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ Jesus as the only sufficient basis for mankind's salvation and the call for faith and repentance from the people to whom you're speaking. Jesus said, Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, 19. How are you going to make disciples of people without telling them that they must become disciples? How are you going to baptize anyone without them first believing? Which is the New Testament pattern of baptism. Believe and be baptized. How are they going to believe a message without first hearing a message? And this is the logic of Romans 10, 13 to 17. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what He has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Paul begins that section with a statement. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the glorious announcement that there is salvation to be found in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ we read in the Scriptures, came into this world to save sinners. Sinners like you and me. The Bible tells us that we, by nature, are children of wrath. Ephesians 2. It wasn't just the Ephesian Christians that Paul was talking to in Ephesians 2. But he says, to them, you were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So that's all of us. By nature, we're children of wrath. John chapter 3 tells us that if we don't have dealings with Jesus Christ, the wrath of God remains upon us. You don't have to do anything to remain in the situation that you're in. If you don't have dealings with Jesus, the default setting is that the wrath of God remains upon you. Why? Because all of us have broken God's law. We have done what we ought not to have done. Those things which God prohibited and said, Thou shalt not, we have done. And those things that God commanded, saying, Thou shalt, we have not done. We have not loved God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. 
nor loved our neighbors as ourselves. And Jesus says all of the imperatives in Scripture can be summed up in those two imperatives. For this reason, because all of us are sinners, we are under the wrath of God by nature. But Paul says here in Romans 10, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is salvation to be found in Jesus. Jesus came into this world to save sinners like you and me. You know what He did with His life? He lived in obedience to God's law. All the thou shalts, He did not. And all the thou shalts, He did. He loved God with all His heart, soul, strength, and mind. And He loved His neighbor as Himself. Christ Jesus kept the law for us. This is what Galatians 4 tells us. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus came and kept that for us. He answered the demands of the law for us. But we still had a penalty that we deserved to pay. We deserved to have the wrath of God pour out, poured out upon us. So you know what Jesus did at the cross? He drank the cup of God's wrath that we should have drunk. Jesus, as He hung there on the cross, suffered the wrath of God in our place. And so what the law demands in terms of righteousness, Christ Jesus offered up to God by His life. And what the law demands in terms of penalty and punishment for its breach, Jesus answered by means of His death. And so it is by trusting in Jesus' answering of the law's demands for us, instead of trusting in our own attempts to answer the law's demands in ourselves, it's by shifting our confidence away from ourselves to Jesus. Not... I will be saved because of my law keeping, but I will be saved because of his law keeping. That's what it means to trust Jesus, to put faith in Jesus. That's what it means to call upon the name of the Lord. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You know that we don't serve a dead Savior. We don't worship a corpse rotting in a grave in Israel. Because three days after he was buried, that song we sing at Easter, up from the grave he arose in a mighty triumph for his foes. And just as he was raised, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, so we who trust in him will be raised. And at the end, for those who are in Christ Jesus, that saying shall come to pass. O grave, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For in the end, when Christ has raised us up from the grave to live with Him forever, 
When everything that we read about in Revelation 21 has come to pass, and the dwelling place of God is with man, and all things have been made new. We're going to look around and there's not going to be any graves. And there's not going to be any death anymore. Because Jesus dealt with all of that for us. That's the gospel. And until you get that message, until you get that message to people's ears, you haven't gospelized. You haven't evangelized. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We get that message to people's ears. And everyone who responds to that message by trusting in Christ Jesus, every one of them will be saved. That means your coworker who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Your friend who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Your uncle, your aunt, your dad, your mom, your son, your daughter, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the man or the woman or the boy or the girl in another country where Christ has never yet been preached, if they should call on the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. Every one of them. But Paul goes on to say, how are they to believe in Him of whom they've never heard? Romans 10, 14. Right after Romans 10, 13. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how are they going to believe in Him if they never heard of Him? Brothers and sisters, there is a wonderful message. There is a gospel. There is good news for sinners. But how can sinners believe the news if they never heard the news? We ought to evangelize. It is our duty. Jesus makes it clear in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew 28. Out of obedience to our Savior, we must go and make disciples. One implication of this is that we should not only take opportunities to evangelize when they come to us, but we should also make opportunities to evangelize. When someone comes to us, like the Philippian jailer come, came to Paul, says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I hope you all know what you're supposed to tell them about Jesus. But that's never happened to me. I don't know about you. Even if it has happened to you, it's probably not a regular occurrence. Going out to do evangelism like that is like going out fishing, waiting for fish to jump in the boat. It could happen. It could happen. But it works better if you get your line in the water. We need to go and make disciples. Not wait for potential disciples to come to us. So don't merely take opportunities to gospelize. 
make opportunities to gospelize. I used to work for a company in Canada on the premises of a factory, but I worked out in the yard and most of the day I worked independently by myself. So I had coworkers, but I didn't really see them very much. I'd see them here and there, I'd see them on break times, lunch times, so on and so forth. Listen, I was serious about evangelism back in that day, but I was misguided about evangelism back in that day. I used to pray on my way into work so many times, almost every day. God, please give me opportunities to talk to these guys. And I'd wait, and I'd wait, and I'd wait for these opportunities to come up. After about two years there, I was moving on to a new job. And I realized I had evangelized like, like evangelism properly defined. Probably once where I actually had a gospel conversation. I had some spiritual conversations about things from time to time and so forth. But as I talked about at the beginning of this message, that's not actually evangelism. There's no gospelizing without the gospel. And I resolved in the future, in my new job and in any job I held after that, and in the rest of my life, not to be passive, waiting for evangelistic opportunities to come up, but to try as I'm able to make opportunities, to turn a conversation towards the one who, in Solomon's words, toward the one whom my soul loves. We ought to evangelize. We ought to go. Making disciples, pardon me, making opportunities to evangelize. But what of our motivations? What besides duty ought to motivate us to evangelism? As I alluded to just a minute ago, we ought to evangelize out of love for God. We ought to be desirous to talk about God and the things that He's done for us in the Gospel. We talk about what we love. I could talk to you all day about dogs and dog training. I could talk to you about football, the American kind, and a number of other things that I'm interested in. How cold my heart is toward God when I'm not that interested in talking about the gospel. Who God is in relation to me. What He's done for me in Christ Jesus. What my relationship is to Him now as opposed to then. And our love for God ought to lead us to evangelism in another way also. In making converts, we're making worshipers. When someone comes to faith in Christ, they become one who loves, adores, serves, and praises our great God and Savior. And our love for God ought to propel us to do what we can to see Him receive the worship that He's due. Psalm 96 tells us that we ought to ascribe to God the glory 
do His name. The nations ought to ascribe to God the glory due His name. It bothers us when one of our friends or one of our family members gets ripped off and doesn't get something that they're due. When someone cheats them or swindles them or deceives them and they don't get what they're due, it bothers us because we love them. When God is not receiving His due, it ought to bother us. Until every being on the face of this earth, until humans are praising God and in the hyperbole and the anthropomorphism that the scripture uses, until the rocks are crying out, until the trees of the field, until the mountains, until the seas are roaring, celebrating, exulting, and all of us human creations, along with those sorts of creations, until all of us are crying out unceasingly the praises of God, our love for God ought to motivate us to evangelism. We ought to evangelize out of love for God. We ought also to evangelize out of love for our fellow man. Biblical evangelism is propelled not only by a desire to see God receive the worship that He's due, but also a desire to see people saved from their sin. After all, the enterprise of evangelism is undergirded by the presupposition that those who have never heard of Christ are nevertheless, as Romans 1 and verse 20 says, without excuse. The assumption of Paul in Romans 10 also is that those who do not call on the name of the Lord will not be saved. His whole desire in that section is for the salvation of souls. So he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I desire them to be saved. This is the means they need to call on the name of the Lord. But how are they going to call on the name of the Lord unless they're sent? So if we want people to be saved, and people need to call on the name of the Lord to be saved, then they can't call on the name of the Lord and believe a message they never heard. Therefore, we got to take the message to them. That's what Paul's doing in Romans 10. How can we be indifferent to the plight of our fellow man? In view of the fact that those who have never heard of Christ are without excuse. That they cannot call on the name of the Lord because they have not heard of the Lord. How can we be indifferent to their plight? Should we not care that they perish? God Himself says in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 that He is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Are we not to have the same heart toward our fellow men? We ought to evangelize out of love for our fellow man as well as out of our love for God. Thirdly, and drawing nearer to the theme of our conference this weekend, 
the doctrine of unconditional election is a motivation to evangelism. Paul's understanding of election, as discussed earlier this morning, encourages us that no one is too far gone. There is no consideration of works, either good or bad, in the matter of God's choosing one individual for salvation and not another. Perhaps you have a friend or a family member hurtling himself or herself down the wrong path which ends at the gates of hell. Perhaps you've shared the gospel many times and there seems to be no receptivity. You see sin upon sin upon sin. Hardness of heart. No love for Christ. No interest in the gospel. You see that they're doing things morally which are bad. And they're doing things with their will which are bad. Brothers and sisters, Paul himself was such a man. He was killing Christians. He was as hard as you could get. Many throughout church history have been such men. We look around and we see people that we think are lost causes. You would certainly think that Paul was. But God has chosen to save many a lost cause. It's not of Him who wills or runs, but of Him that has mercy. Not according to works done, either good or bad. Not of Him who wills, not of human will or exertion. But in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Because of him who has mercy. This is the way the gospel works. God doesn't choose good people. God doesn't look to see who's the wisest and choose them. God doesn't look to see who is the most moral and choose them. God doesn't look to see who deserves it and choose them. God doesn't look to see who has potential and choose them. People that we look at them and we say they are far from God. They hate the gospel. Whether the irreligious kind, whatever, partying, drinking, carousing, using drugs, sleeping around, violent whatever, the irreligious kind of lost causes or the religious kind of lost causes like ISIS fighters, radical Islamists. We think they hate the gospel, they never cover. And all along that spectrum, God does not look at who has potential to be saved. God does not look at works done, whether good or bad. God does not look at decisions that people have made with their will and then choose whether or not to save them in response to these things. God chooses of His own mercy whom He will save. And God saves lost causes. 
This ought to give us drive to bring the gospel again and again and again and again and again to those who from a human perspective we think will never listen. Go talk to the guys on the block. Go talk to the guys in jail. Talk to those who are violent. Talk to those who are sexually promiscuous. Talk to those using drugs and alcohol. Talk to those who have never walked in a church building in their whole life. Talk to any of them. Talk to all of them. And talk to them repeatedly. Talk to those devoted to false gods. Talk to Muslims. Talk to Hindus. Talk to those who are mixed up and are following a perverted and inauthentic version of Christianity. Like Roman Catholics. Talk to people who are very religious and in their religiosity opposed to the true gospel. Talk to them again and again and again and the doctrine of election will tell us that some will be saved. Because God's not looking for people who have potential to be saved. Even the hardest cases from our perspective are nothing for God. God may well have decreed to save that person that you think is a lost cause. So take the gospel to them over and over and over. The doctrine of election encourages us that as Paul, God said to Paul in Acts 18 and verse 10, when we come to a new city or a new country, a new people group, to do gospel work. As God said to Paul in Acts 18.10, he could as well say to us, I have people in that city. I have people in that country. I have people in that language. There are those who will hear and believe as we go out and do evangelism. We can be confident that as was the case in Acts 13 and verse 48, that as we preach the gospel, all who are appointed to eternal life will believe. Election is a great encouragement. Unconditional election is a great encouragement to evangelism. If God had not elected to save people. And that it was just about our methods and our persuasiveness and so on and so forth. Wouldn't that seem like a much taller order than to know that God has decreed that there will be those who hear and believe. And he has undertaken to save each and every one of them. And we are just messengers, heralds of the good news. The doctrine of election is a great encouragement to evangelism. 
because it guarantees the salvation of some. There's going to be a harvest. And it assures us that God may yet have his sights set upon those who to us seem too far gone. Election is a great encouragement to evangelism. An unconditional election is one among many motivations for evangelism, some of which we've just discussed. But evangelism speaks not only to motivations, but also to methods. Biblical, the biblical doctrine of election, unconditional election, speaks to our methods of evangelism. Here's the question. What can make the dead alive? What are the means that God intends to use? What has to happen for someone to believe the gospel? There are two paradigms. One paradigm says that God has done equally for all people. And now it's in everybody's court. Each individual has to choose what they will do with the grace that God has shown to them. And God has shown equal grace to all people everywhere. And so basically, the decision is the individual's. And that's the framework within which evangelism is carried out. The other paradigm says that everybody is so blind to the things of God. Everybody is so dead in their trespasses and sins. All of their righteousness is as filthy rags. There's no sweetness in Christ to them. There's nothing appealing to them about the gospel or about our Savior. The natural man, the carnal man, the King James Version says, does not understand the things of God, nor can he, for they are spiritually discerned. And unless God does something specific to these people, no one will respond. And it's within that context that evangelism is carried out. There's these two paradigms. In the first paradigm, if God has dealt in the same way with every individual on the face of the earth, and now all that's left is for people to make up their minds, then we're going to probably try to be as persuasive, as creative as we possibly can in terms of techniques, methods, the way we uh, approach it is going to be under the assumption that a person is basically has a neutral will and that we want to try to convince them to use their neutral will to accept what it is that we're saying about Jesus and the gospel. In this other paradigm, we're going to say, okay, if God has to save these people, what are the means that God says He will work through to save these people? Because there's nothing we can do to save these people. So let's see what God's going to do to save these people and get on board with that program. So, In this paradigm, 
of basically assuming that people's wills are more or less neutral, that they, they may or may not choose Christ, that God has already gone as far as God's going to go. He's, he's done everything that He's going to do. And that He's dealt with everybody equally. And now it's just up to each individual. Coming out of this, you have things, initiatives like Impact World, which ran here last year, where basically the idea was that the church needs to be a little bit more competitive in terms of getting people's interest, retaining people's interest and making people interested in our message. And so they brought in professional artists and actors and athletes and skateboarders and muscle men to try to attract large crowds and show them that Christianity is interesting and cool and all this kind of stuff. And then apparently preach the gospel to them so that these people will hopefully decide to trust in Christ Jesus. On within this other paradigm which is that there's nothing that we could possibly do no matter how many skateboarders and muscle men you get no matter how cool you make the message no matter how interesting you make the message the fundamental issue is that people are dead in their trespasses and sins and they're not actually interested in Jesus so they might come to your program because they're interested in, in skateboarders and muscle men and fire-breathing men on stilts, but they're not coming because they're interested in Jesus. And so within this paradigm, we recognize that something much more profound than tipping a neutral will one way or the other must occur if people are really going to be saved. And the means that God uses to make that profound change occur is the proclamation of the gospel. Back to Romans 10. Right after this section that we've looked at, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will they believe in Him if they never heard of Him? Down just a couple verses. Verse 17, we read, Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the Word of Christ. What we need to understand is that if the situation is that people are basically neutral, and we got to convince them, and we got to... make the message appealing so that they will believe we're going to go with all these other methods but when we recognize that God has determined to save for himself a people and that these people are like everyone else dead in trespasses and sins with no interest in Christ blind but that God has purposed 
that through the proclamation of Christ, the message about Christ, that Jesus lived and died to answer the demands of the law for sinners. When we realize that it is through that message that God is determined to save the people whom He has chosen to save, then we're not going to waste our time with gimmicks. And we're going to be busy about proclaiming Christ. We're going to be focused on gospelizing. We're going to be focused on, in our churches, preaching Christ. We're not going to look for the coolest pastors who dress cool and act cool. We're not going to be looking for men who fit in in the secular world, men who are well respected in the business community or so forth. What we're going to look for is men with fire in their bones to preach Christ and Him crucified. Men who are like Apollos, mighty in the Scriptures. Men who, like Paul, will not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. And that's what we're going to aim for in church. Men who will resolve to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. And what we're going to aim for as we send church members outside the church walls to reach those in their spheres of influence is not to send them out to be cool. Not to train them up to fit in in secular society. We're not going to be focused on any of those sorts of things. What we're going to be focused on doing is sending people, church members, who themselves love Jesus, outside of these church walls with a focus on Christ and Him crucified. Because we know that the means that God has appointed to bring in those whom He has chosen to save is not skateboarders and muscle men, but the proclamation of Christ. And so we want churches full of people in the pulpits and in the pews who love God, who want to talk about Him, who want to talk about what He's done for us in the gospel, who want Him to receive the worship, the glory that He's due. We want people in the pews that love their fellow man, want to see their fellow man saved from their sins who have a heart like God, who is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And we want people who understand what the Bible teaches about election, that it is unconditional, and who are fired by that, driven by that, propelled by that to go into the world with the gospel on their lips, understanding that God will save some through those simple, ordinary means of getting the gospel to people's ears. And that 
because God has not taken into account works done, either good or bad, or decisions made with the will, even those who seem to be lost causes may be among those whom God has loved with an everlasting love and has decreed to save. And so are motivated to go out, motivated by the doctrine of unconditional election, among other things, to go outside the church walls with the gospel and not just say, God bless you or I'll pray for you and not just have vague spiritual conversations, not just make friends and build relationships for future evangelism, But on top of all of those things, to actually gospelize. To put the evangelion in their evangelism. To go out and speak of Christ. Talk about Christ. To proclaim that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the only sufficient basis for the salvation of sinners. And to call people to repentance and faith in Him. So evangelism is our duty. We ought to do it out of love for God and love for our fellow man. Evangelism is bringing the evangelion, the gospel, to people's ears. And the doctrine of unconditional election does not undermine evangelism, but actually fuels and fires evangelism to be all the more intense and all the more desirable. Understanding that God will save His people and that even those who seem to us to be lost causes may be in God's decree among the elect.